Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. There is, before we read, there's a great deal, as always, there's a great deal of application that can be drawn from Nehemiah chapter 5. Great deal of leadership lessons and what it means to lead others. There's a great deal of, of application that can be drawn. And we'll do some of that. We'll do some of that. But I just want to give you an encouragement. There's so much to read, so much to learn, so much to glean from the Scripture that we are not going to cover every every dot this morning. We're going to cover um, what the Lord has laid on us to cover in this text. And I would encourage you as the week progresses to look over Nehemiah, the whole book, read the whole book, and then read chapter 5 again. And uh, just... Draw as much as you can from the Scripture. There's so much here, so much for us to delight in, so much for us to enjoy. But let's read together Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read the whole chapter to start with, and then we'll dive right in. Let's go. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters... We are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and officials And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, as we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find the word to say. So I said The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and they and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these and require nothing of them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to, to do as they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, 
Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. For the former governors, who were there before me, had laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I do not do so. Because of the fear of God, I also persevered in the work on His wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my now what was prepared at my expense each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds and 10 and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance for the go- from the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Lord, add your blessing to the reading and the hearing of your word. So, Nehemiah chapter 5, we begin with the setting. First, the people and the wives and the Jewish brothers here at the very beginning, cry out against the governor and cry out against the nobles and they cry out against the taxation. There's some sort of famine in the land. So let's get what's going on here. There's there's Israel's building the wall. They've got oppression from outside. They've got oppression from inside. They, last chapter, they had to thwart a murderous attempt to try and kill the workers. And they have brothers who are standing guard at all times. They have so great is the guard, so intense is the guard, that they are staying night and day dressed in their armor. They are staying night and day dressed in their armor with their spears and swords at their sides. They are ready for battle at every moment. There are people who are working on the wall, and next to them are people who are defending their very lives, watching out for spies from within, watching out for murderers from without, and attacks and raids on the people on different areas of the wall. And they are having to do this night and day to build the wall. And the wall has become larger, but it's not done. And they're still working on it. And all of a sudden, a famine hits. A famine hits the land. And the wives cry out. The the Jews and the wives cry out. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. This outcry was not against the raiders. It was not against Tobiah and Sambalat. It was not against them. It was against the very Jewish brothers who were inside the camp of Israel. They are crying out against them. So, the note here, the wives. It's emphasized. The wives cry out against. I just want to take a moment to encourage you women... You have a great voice in your husband's ear. If you say something to him at home, it will come out. 
from his mouth. He will speak it somewhere. You have a great voice. There's an old saying that is not a biblical saying. The first part is the husband is the head of the household. The wife is the neck. That is that is a observational truth. It's an observational truth. That means it's a general maxim. Not always true, but most of the time that's true. If the wife says things at home, the husband will turn. He will go one way or another. The Proverbs say it is better to live on the corner of a housetop than it is in the, in the house of a nagging wife. It's true. Husbands, I've seen it a thousand times. If, you're, if you love your wife and you respect her and you honor her and you defend her and she's the only woman in your sight, then your partnership will be powerful. Wives, I've seen it a thousand times. If you nag and push and drag your husband... He will turn and he will do what you tell him because he gets tired and he needs you. He needs you more than he needs anything else. So he will listen to you eventually. Eventually, a good husband will listen to you and they will hear you. And what you say to them in private will help guide their walk. You are his helper. You are his partner drawn from his side to walk alongside him, to lead to lead with him. And while he is the head of the household, there's a lot of truth to the idea that the wife is the neck and turns him. So I just want to encourage you, before we go anywhere, understand the power of your words with your husband. These women cry out. These wives cry out. I guarantee their husbands are the ones going to Nehemiah. That they're the ones going to speak to him. The wives are crying out and they're going, listen, man, my wife is saying, what do we do? This, The wives are crying and they are turning things. Things are turning. You hold a great deal of sway in the hearts of your husband. That was a side note, uh, but I wanted to make it. So we see here they are crying out. Uh, for there were those who said with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain and that we may eat and keep alive and there are those who said we're mortgaging our fields our vineyards our houses because of the great famine and we were those who said and there were those who said we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards now the flesh is of our brothers our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and yet our children are as their children we're forcing our sons and daughters into slavery this is a instant of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground. This is an instant of that. This is a brother crying out against the brother. Remember in Genesis chapter 4 when God says to Cain, uh, where is your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? People love to quote that. The answer, by the way, is yes. You are your brother's keeper. No. Where is he? And the way that God says that is your, the blood of your brother cries out to me from the ground. The way that we treat each other, the way that the people of God treat each other matters. The way that we treat each other matters. doesn't matter how great your theology is if it doesn't affect the way that you handle other people. You may have the best theology in the world, but if you're a horrible person, it doesn't matter. Because it hasn't affected change in your heart. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth, 
speaks. The heart affects the hands. We find our lives changed by Jesus. And our theology changes the way we live. A theology that has no effect on the way that you live is not theology. It's not a theology. It's a system of ideals and principles that you don't even live up to. Theology changes the way we live. These these brothers are crying out. So hard times and famine come here. And let's just examine these here. Hard times come here from God. The hard times and famine in verse 3 come from God. Uh, Haggai chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to nothing. Then he goes on and says, Because my house lies in ruins while you are busy building your own houses. And then he says, Therefore, the heavens will withhold the dew, and I have called for drought. God takes claim for the famine here. This is contemporary prophecy. Haggai was just a couple of years before. He And he prophesied, Because you're building your house, and you've neglected mine, I'm going to withhold the rain. I'm going to cause a famine. So there's famine here, and it is God's doing in part. It is in part God's doing. Second, uh, The second one is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, where it says, you are cursed and you rob God. And then he says, bring in the whole tithe, bring in the whole tithe to the storehouse, and bring in the whole tithe to the storehouse, and see if I don't bless you. Just see if I don't bless you. God challenges the people to obey the word of God and see if I don't bless you. Now, there's a lot to be said about tithing. We're not going into that. Don't worry if you're like, oh, great. The preacher's going to talk about money. We got books in the back on money. You're welcome to read them. There's too much to say about that to talk about that in this message. Too much to say about this text to talk about that, except to say that... Uh, the Old Testament tithe was about 23.7% of your income, and it was divided among different places. And 10% that went to the storehouse was to be used to distribute among the people. And that's what Malachi is talking about. He's saying, bring your tithe to the storehouse so we might take care of people when they need it. That's what, that's what he's talking about there. And so this has to do with the way that we treat each other. The way that we treat each other. Building God's kingdom has to do with the way that we treat each other. The way that we love each other. The way that we share with each other. The way that we provide for each other's needs. This is the beauty of the kingdom building work in Nehemiah. Now, the second thing that's causing this hard times and famine is usury and oppression. Usury is an oppressive act on poor people. That's exacting interest at a high rate, at a rate beyond the rate of inflation on people. This is sinful. Understand in the Old Testament, exacting high interest is a sin. Taking a loan with a reasonable amount is not sin. He tells you how to do it. He tells you how to give loans. But, Exacting high interest on a loan, especially of the people of God who you are loaning to, is wrong. And in Deuteronomy, especially of the poor. Especially of the poor. If the poor are forced into high interest, that is sinful in the law of God. That is sinful in the law of God. So we see 
usury as something sinful. So great is the usury in Nehemiah that there are people selling their children into servitude in order to pay off their debts. Selling their teenagers, their children, their kids into servitude in order to pay off their debts. Could you imagine my 14-year-old having to go to work in order to provide for a debt that I had to take on to get bread to eat? That's atrocious. That's awful. So, let's talk a little bit about taxation and interest. The setting here is that the people and their wives cry out against their Jewish brothers. Hard times and famine have come, and taxation and interest comes. Now we see that the king has a tax there in verse 4. That he taxes. Now, governments should be expected to tax. You should expect that the government is going to tax you. That is understandable. So when you see a new tax, don't get mad. Just understand, okay, it's the government. They're supposed to tax me. That's kind of the thing they do. In fact, in the Bible, when they come to the land and they demand a king, what is the first thing Samuel says that the king is going to do? He's going to tax you, and he's going to take your children and make them serve in the military. That's what Samuel says the king is going to do. Kings tax people. Governments tax people. Now, there are just taxes, and there are unjust taxes. And let's just real quickly run over those. Just taxes are those taxes that cover an expense incurred by the government over services provided. An example would be the maintenance of roads. They charge car registrations and things like that for the maintenance of roads. They are supposed to maintain roads. That's part of the job of the government. So we pay for that. We get taxed for that. We have fines for that. We have registration fees for that. That makes sense. Policing. You have taxes for policing. The government provides police services. You have taxes for that. That makes sense. Now, unjust taxes, and we have lots of unjust taxes in our world, just to be fair, unjust taxes are taxes that are imposed to satisfy a written law that otherwise would incur no cost to the government at all. An easy test for this is if the law were not there, would the government incur any cost? If the law were not there, would the government incur any cost? If the answer is no, then it's an unjust tax. If the answer is yes, then it's a just tax. That's easy. It's an easy litmus test to see that. Now, some of these are complex because a lot of them deal with ideologies and and there is a responsibility on the government to kind of keep order. And some of them, order is a hard thing to quantify at times. So uh, be wise. But when you are voting and when you are discussing taxation, when you are discussing political things with your neighbor, remember that just taxes are those that the government has incurred an expense and the taxes are there to cover the expense. And unjust taxes are the taxes where if you remove the law that they're taxing you for, if that law did not, if that did not incur any expense on behalf of the government, then that tax is probably unjust. And you ought to look into it and you ought to say something. We live in a place where you get to vote. So vote. Vote in people who do right. Now, in this case, the king provides judges and policing where they are. The king is providing government tax. The problem in the outcry is not that it's the taxation of the king. The problem in the outcry is that it is the Jewish brothers who are bringing interest and usury and even taxation on these people. 
It is the Jewish brothers. These are the people of God who are all supposed to be about the work of God, laboring to do this. Now, what does God's law say about this? What does God's law say about loans? First, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 6, it says, No taking a man's millstone. You don't take a man's millstone, the thing which he grinds grain with. You don't take the man's livelihood. When you are uh, charging, when you're giving a loan, livelihood and the ability to feed himself is not collateral. You don't take away a man's ability to feed himself. You leave him with his honor and his dignity and the ability to feed himself. Note that the man's still going to have to work. Even in the face of the loan, he doesn't take a loan so that he doesn't have to work. He takes a loan because he needs it, but there's a way to do it. You don't take his millstone. You don't, you don't rob him of the dignity of having the ability to eat and the ability to provide. Second is found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 through 13. And I'll just list them all for you. First, there's no forced payment for, for, or repossession. There's no forced payment or repossession. In other words, it says that you, when you come to a man's house to claim the pledge that he has, you stay outside the house. You don't go inside the house and take his pledge. You stay outside the house so that he can bring it to you. You don't shame him by breaking in and taking his stuff. You don't take it by force. You don't repossess. We are people of honor. The people of God are people of honor. And we love each other first. We love each other first. So when you come to exact your loan or when you come to get payment, you trust that they are going to act in honor. And you wait outside the house. You wait outside the house for them to come. You tell them, I've got to get that pledge. I need to pay these bills that I have. I need to do that. Can you bring me the money? And you trust that they're going to do it. You trust that they're going to do it. Why? Because you're in the community of faith. Second, the man gets to keep his honor. This is one of the principles in Deuteronomy 24. The man gets to keep his honor. You don't steal a man's livelihood. You don't steal a man's honor either. You don't make a man ashamed. That is shameful for the whole community, not just the man. So you don't do that. You, you preserve a man's honor. Then, if he's poor, you give him what he needs. There's a line in that Deuteronomy 24 uh, where it says that if you take the man's coat, you give it back if he doesn't have one. You provide for him. You take care of the poor and the weak among you. This is this is the the principle of God's people working together. We care more about each other than we do paperwork. We care more about each other than we do paperwork and stuff. Paperwork and stuff clouds our vision of each other. But we care about each other. So we preserve each other's ability to live. We help each other when we're poor and downtrodden. We take care of the poor and the weak among us. Finally, the Lord honors this as righteous there at the end of 24, verse 13. We, he honors it as righteousness. This is honored for you. If you do this, this is honored. Now, there are some principles here that we want to always remember. And these principles pour out in the people of God, Old Testament and New. This is this is general principles that we see throughout the law that pour out into us as well. Remember, first, we are to remember that we were slaves. You, the Israelites, were to remember that there were slaves in Egypt. You are to remember that you were slave to sin. That you were no greater or worse than anybody around you. We were all sinners. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have uh, uttered lies with our lips. We have all had the venom of asps under our lips. Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. No one is justified by works of the law. There's no one who's good. No one is righteous. No one seeks righteousness. All of us were like that. Every one of us. The field is level. There is not a better person. There's only Jesus and then the rest of us. There's only one perfect man, Jesus Christ. Everyone else is flawed, sinful, wicked. And God saves and redeems you. Remember, you were a slave. You were slave to sin. Now, no longer slave to sin, slave to righteousness in Jesus Christ. But you were a slave, remember that. Second, do not take someone's honor. The person is more important than the stuff. The person is more important than your stuff. You don't take people's honor. The person, I would argue, the other person is more important than your life. The other person is more important. No greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. And he is our example of how to live. If I, your master and teacher, have knelt down to to wash your feet, so so you ought to do the same for one another. This is kingdom ideas. You don't take another man's honor. And i got to warn you, if you love people and you love people well, they're going to mess up your stuff. I tell this to my kids all the time. Look, if you love people, they're going to break your stuff. If nothing gets broken, hear the implicit call in that. If nothing gets broken, you're not loving people as much as you could. That's the implicit thing in that statement. If you love people, they're going to mess up your stuff. They're going to interrupt your time alone. They're going to bother you. You're going to be irritated. Praise the Lord. Have you ever read Jesus walking with the disciples? How many times he goes, how long have I been with you again? How many times he says to them, "What do you, you still don't get it? How many times? We do this for each other. The third principle is that you take care of the poor. You take care of the poor. You provide for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. This shows up all through the book of Deuteronomy. You are to provide for orphans and widows in their affliction. James says that it is in their affliction you visit them. So the problem that Nehemiah has here, we've got these, this is all still setting. The problem is that the rich are lavish there in verse 15. He says the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people. The, uh, the, the wealthy are exacting interest on the loans in verse 11. They're exacting extreme interest, not just interest, but enough interest to where the poor people are, uh, are actually not able to produce. Right? The people are being farmers are forced to mortgage their land and give away their children. Now, I want you just to think practically about this. You're building the wall with the whole kingdom of God, and there are farms outside that are needing to be farmed, and you've got farmers who are being charged so much interest they can't afford to do the farming. Where are the people inside the wall going to get food to eat? All of a sudden, this is a community problem. This is no longer farmer Jim Bob who can't afford to grow corn. This is the people inside the wall can't eat. 
The people building the wall can't eat. When we afflict each other, when we afflict each other, when we weigh heavy burdens on one another, what we do is harmful to the whole kingdom. It's harmful to everyone. When we treat each other poorly, when we treat each other poorly, it affects all of us, not just one, not just you and that person. That's why it's so critical that we deal with each other when things come up. That's why it's so critical that you can see everybody. Oh, it, it, is, it is so strange to go to a church where you can go to the church and never be seen. You know what I'm talking about? When you go to a church and you're not seen by anybody and no one knows who you are and you walk in and out and there's nothing. No one talks to you, no one calls you, no one sees you. But you had a good worship service and you felt good and you went home and maybe you had a good lunch and maybe tonight you'll go back for the evening service and it'll be great. And then you'll go volunteer in whatever programs you're volunteering in, but nobody knows who you are, at least not in the dark. That is not Christianity. That is a form of church that is detrimental to the soul. It is imperative that we see each other, that we know each other, that when we are struggling, everybody is struggling together. We all have struggles. Your struggles just look different than mine. They're no better or worse. And we'll do it best if we struggle together. We'll do it best if we struggle together. So Nehemiah has this problem of farmers being forced to do that, and they're enslaving their children and brothers. They're enslaving each other. This ought not be in the kingdom of God. Enslaving each other and putting each other into a new law or a new system in which we are being forced to be uh, held back. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of freedom. The word of God the Father has always been a word of freedom for His people. It's always been freedom. It is for freedom that you were set free. So do not go back and bind yourself to a law of slavery again. Instead, be free in Christ and together we are to press towards holiness and righteousness together as a team. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, he puts it this way. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? This is Nehemiah's trouble. The people of God are treating each other horribly. But the truth is, the people of God are supposed to love each other first. And then they're supposed to love the world. By your offspring, the nations will be blessed. The gospel blesses the nations through the people of God because of Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is the offspring. I just want to be clear, if you uh, are thinking about that passage in Genesis, what he says there, by your seed, the nations of the world will be blessed is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the blessing to the world. We take that blessing and we give it out to everyone. That's the blessing. So, believers are to love first. People of God are to treat each other as people, as humans, not as business transactions. We are to treat each other as people and humans, not as business transactions. You don't rob someone's humanity. Believers love first. And who are we to love first? We're supposed to love the Samaritan first. The, the one who hates us. The good Samaritan story in Luke chapter 10. Who is my brother? And Jesus says, the guy you hate, that's your brother. 
That's your brother. The one you hate and despise, that you think is evil and does everything wrong. That's your brother. Yay! We are one in the family of God. Right? Let's... You don't get to choose your family. They get born into the family. So you're my brother. You're my sister. If you believe in Jesus Christ, I don't have a choice. I don't have to like you, but I do have to love you. I don't have to enjoy your company all the time, but I should strive to. I should strive to enjoy your company because somehow Jesus does it. So we should do it too. So James chapter, I just want to rattle some of these things off that we're told in Scripture, how we are to treat one another. James says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction in James 1.27. In James 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, show no partiality to anybody. And he's talking about rich, socioeconomic, anybody. Don't show any partiality to economically, socially, or even in education. There is no partiality to be given from one person to another. Why? Because Jesus is the only righteous one. He's the only one that gets priority. Everyone else is level. The field is level. Finally, uh, James chapter 2, verse 15 says to feed the hungry and provide for the poor. What good is it if you say to a man, go be fed and dressed and then give him nothing? Take care of the needs of each other. Take care of the needs of the brothers and sisters. Provide for them. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans chapter nine, chapter 12, verse 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I just want to challenge anybody in this room who wants to play a game with me. Let's try to outdo one another in showing honor. In small ways, every moment. I love it. It's a fun game. I lose often to you. So, let's play. Do not be slothful in showing zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. That's a hard one for me. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. These are all plain ways that we are, as the people of God, to live together, in love together, in following Jesus. Now, we have a balanced approach. I just want to be clear. We have a balanced approach. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, it says if someone is too lazy to work, don't let them eat. He says if they can work and they're too lazy, you don't just hand them the the stuff and tell them, oh, it's okay, just go over there and be lazy. Mooches aren't allowed in the kingdom. There's no such thing. So we all work, we all labor, but if a brother can't or is unable, then you are to help him. You are to help him. There is a difference. So we've got the setting. Now, let's get to Nehemiah's response. All of that was introduction. You guys have another hour and a half. Um, Nehemiah's response here. First, look at verse, uh, verse. well, actually, just think about verses 1 through 5 here. He hears their complaint. He hears their complaint. Say it again. He hears their complaint. He thinks first, and he shows the process. He hears their complaint. He thinks first, and he moves slowly. Look at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard this outcry and these words. He gets angry, and he took counsel with himself. So he thinks. Nehemiah hears the complaint, and he thinks. And you can imagine what he has said earlier in the book has applied here. Remember, every time he's been at some place, he hears something, he prays first. That's his first reaction. All through the book of Nehemiah, that's what we have seen. Pray first, wait. 
and then act. So here, there's probably no difference. He hears the complaint, he gets out, he gets enraged, and then he takes counsel with himself. He begins to think. He thinks first and gets clear. Now, brothers and sisters, I have struggled with anxiety almost all my life. Not extreme. I've never needed medication. Some people do. But I have struggled with a nervousness all my life when major things come up, in particular meetings. Doesn't matter if the meeting is good or bad. I get super nervous when there's a meeting. Somebody goes, hey, let's have a meeting to discuss XYZ on, you know, March 29th. Until the 29th, I'm going to be like this, inside, just pacing. Now, I, I want you to understand that's okay. That's okay. If you are like me and you have that, that's okay. But think first. The temptation for me is to run over the other person who wants to set the meeting and force the meeting now. That's my temptation. I tend to run over people or my natural, I don't do it anymore. I, my natural inclination has always been to run over the other person. That's not loving or kind or generous. It's not considering their point of view or their struggle. Maybe they have to think about it, but they need to set it on the books for their own self. Like It's not considering them. Instead, Nehemiah gives us the example, think first, get clarity first. I took counsel in myself. He takes counsel. He thinks it through. Nehemiah, second, just take a note. Nehemiah heard them. Nehemiah was busy. Nehemiah was a busy man. Wives and Jews, farmers coming to him. He could have easily have looked at them and said, listen, I'll get to you later. He doesn't. He hears them. He hears their complaints. He hears their words. And he immediately lets it affect him. Jesus does this. He hears your complaint. He hears your word. He's the God of the universe. Do you think that he doesn't have more stuff to do? My kids come into the room sometimes when I'm studying and they ask me for something and I am tempted to say that regrettable phrase that every man regrets when he's old. Baby, not right now, I'm busy. Every man I've ever met regrets that. You know what no one regrets? Taking a few minutes to play with their kid. Being interrupted. I've never heard a man go, you know, I just got too far behind at work when they're old. I've never heard a man do that. I have heard men say, I regret not playing with my kids. I regret not taking the time to answer them when they came in the room. I regret being angry with my wife when she asked me for my attention. I regret those things. But I don't regret giving my wife my ear when she needs it or doing the dishes when they're not done or taking care of the kids when she's stressed out or playing with my children when they need me to play with them. I don't regret those things. You won't either. Nehemiah hears the complaint of his brothers and sisters and he does not tell them he's too busy. He answers them. Likewise, Jesus Christ hears your call. Jesus Christ hears your call and he never looks at you and goes, I'm too busy. The God of the universe never looks at you and says, I'm too busy. He never does it. 
He is a good and faithful God, and He loves us, and He will give you time. Nehemiah could have said, we all need to make sacrifices. We'll all deal with that later. He could have said anything like that, but He does not. He instead listens. Then He recognizes the nature of their complaint. Look at the nature of their complaint. The food supply has been diminished. They're being oppressed. And there in verse 5, their children are even being sold into slavery. There is an oppression here. The nature of the complaint is that it does not just affect the farmer outside the doors, but it's affecting everyone. Nehemiah and his brothers, if this complaint continues and is not addressed, Nehemiah and his brothers working on the wall will not be able to eat. This is a complaint that matters. It's a complaint that matters. This is not a complaint of that farmer over there has a green-colored wagon, and this farmer over here has a red-colored wagon, and I think we should all have uniform-colored wagons. That's not the complaint. They're not arguing over the color of carpet. They're arguing over the fact that they can't feed themselves. They can't eat. This is a serious complaint. He listens to the complaint. He recognizes the nature of the complaint. And then Nehemiah gets angry. He hears the complaint and he gets angry. Remember, anger is not a sin. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 through 32 explains that to us. It is not a sin. Instead, you are to be angry and do not sin. You are to be angry, do not sin. Instead, you are to do what is right. You are to work for what you are given. You are to do what's right with your hands. You are to love one another first and foremost. And you are to do so through good works and through forgiveness of each other. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32 summarized for you. The verse 7 here, Nehemiah takes counsel with himself. He gets angry, but he then channels the anger into positive action. He channels his anger into positive action. He does not allow anger to control him, though he is zealous. Remember, Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. He goes into the temple and he whips out all of the sheep and oxen and he forms that whip and drives out the merchants and sellers from the temple. And he says, you have made my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. And he drives them out in fury and anger, but he is never out of control. But he's never out of control. Zeal for the father's house consumes him, but anger does not. Anger is present and he is mad. But he is not consumed by his anger. He's not consumed by his anger. Rather, he drives them out justly. Same way Nehemiah here is not consumed by his anger. Instead, he he goes and he reproofs the people. Reproof must be considered before it is delivered. This is just a side application for you. Nehemiah stops to consider his reproof. It must be considered before it is delivered. You have to think about what you are going to say. Wisdom demands patience and clarity when you are going to bring a correction or reproof to someone. Wisdom demands patience and clarity. Jesus is good at exhorting people. We ought to be good at exhorting people as well. So then Nehemiah charges the leaders. Leaders here are not above charge. Nehemiah doesn't do it privately. He does it publicly. He takes them all in front of everybody there in verses 8 and following. He takes them all in front of everybody in verse uh, 8. And he says in front of the assembly... You have done this. This is wrong. You're exacting interest from your brothers. He brought charges above the leaders. There's an appropriate manner to do this. There's an appropriate manner in which to do this, and I think Nehemiah does. He does not 
blame them. He does not challenge their hearts. Instead, he says, this is what you've done. This is why it's wrong. This is what you've done. This is why it's wrong. It's very factual. He separates the position of people from the others. So what are the steps to dealing with injustice? First, you level the playing field. There in verse 7. You separate positions and class from the problem. You level everybody's equal when there's an injustice. When there's injustice, the only one on high is God. Everybody else is equal. All of us are guilty. All of us need Jesus. You may be the innocent party in this case, but remember you were a slave. And you are to love your brother first. So we're all level. Second, Nehemiah focuses on the community there in verse 9. So I said, this thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of our of the nations, our enemies. So he is saying, what you are doing is affecting our whole nation. It's a community problem. He focuses on the community. You are affecting our nation and you're affecting the way God is viewed. That's what he says. And then in verse 11, he offers a solution. Return everything you took. That's what he tells him. Return everything you took. Stop exacting interest. Return everything you took from them. Now, how does Nehemiah differ from the other nobles? First, he identifies with common man. Nehemiah is identifying with common man. He calls them brothers. He says, these are our brothers. Look at that in verse uh, you've got it here in verse 7, then again in verse 8, and then you've got it again in verse 11. You've got this constant refrain that these are family members. In the beginning, they're their brothers in verse 3 and 5. You've got this constant statement of these are the brothers that are with us, the Jews that are with us. He eats with the people. In verse 14 and 15 there, it says, uh, he says there, Moreover, from that time appointed the governor... Uh, I was appointed to be the governor of the land of Judah from the 20th year to the, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate food allowance given to the governor. For the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from their daily rations 40 shekels. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I do not do so. A good leader works with the people and eats with the people. He eats when the people eat. I had a pastor once tell me, uh, if you will work when your people work, you can play when your people play. So pastors have very flexible schedules. We have incredibly flexible schedules for good reason. We get calls in the middle of the night and we're expected to answer them. That's It's a good reason why pastors have flexible schedules. But he said, he looked at us, I was in a pastor's cohort, and he looked at us and he said, listen, you keep regular disciplined work. Work disciplined at regular hours. And he said, if you will work when your people work, you will play. You can play when your people play. You can do things with them when they are available because you are working when they're working. He said, if you don't work when your people work, you're going to have to work when your people play and you're going to miss out on ministry and life together because you're busy working when they're busy playing. He said, work when your people work and play when your people play. A good leader works with his people. He plays with his people. And that's not relegated just to pastors, by the way. It's also relegated to you. You work with each other. You play with each other. You want to have influence in somebody's life? You see a brother or sister struggling with something and you want influence in their life? Get involved in their life. Get involved in their life. Do stuff with them. Work when they work. Play when they play. Work hard. He identifies with common man. He eats with the people. 
just every time you see table eating food in the Bible, I want you to pay close attention. You ought to zero in when that happens. When you see food in the Bible, the Lord is a God of feasting. He commands his people to eat together all the time, all the time. We are supposed to eat together. So eat with each other. Go to coffee with each other. Have meals with each other. Have people into your homes. Remember, if you have people in your homes, they're going to make it messy. If you love people, they're going to mess up your stuff. It's a delight. It's wonderful. Remember that that's okay. It's okay to be up until 2 a.m. cleaning your house because you had everybody in your house until 1. It's okay for them to go home and get some rest while you slave away in the middle of the night to clean your home. It's okay, and it's worth it. i got to testify to this. It is worth it. It is worth it to love people that way. It's worth it to, to spend all night cleaning your house after people have spent a, hours in your home being refreshed by the gospel, and you've been refreshed by their love for you, and likewise. It is worth it. This is the kingdom of God. Nehemiah eats with the people. He works with the people. He's going to work with them, and then he's coming home, 150 men with him all around the table, you think that there wasn't a lot to clean up? He had a ton to clean up. He eats with the people. So Nehemiah identifies with common man, eats with the people, and he works with the people. And then he feeds people at his own cost. You see that he works with the people there in verse 16. You see that he feeds people at his own expense there in verse 18, where he says, this is how much it cost me every day to feed these people. 150 men. That means men and probably some of their families, if not all of their families. So you have a massive crowd of people that Nehemiah is paying at his own expense. He's not charging them. He has the right to. He's the governor. He has the right to charge them, but he doesn't charge them. He's doing it at their own expense. Oh, the blessing we have when we pour out our own gifts and our own things and our own expense on the body of Christ. What a tremendous blessing. When you make food for brothers and sisters and you work with them and labor with them and then you give them extra food. I will never be, I will never forget, we had a friend come bring us a meal once. They brought us a meal and then they left the entire meal with us. It was great. Then we went to their house <coughs> later on, another day. We went to their house, we had dinner with them. And they made us a meal, and there was abundance. They had an abundance of food. Too much. And then when we left, without us knowing, before we were aware, they packaged the food up and sent it with us. At their expense, they blessed us with not one meal, but two for that week. For no, We, we didn't need it. They just wanted to do it. I'll never forget that feeling of going... You didn't have to give us another meal. And they just went, yeah, well, here, you know, take it home. And we took it home. I'll never, I was struck by it because it was a hospitality that extended beyond their own home into mine. And it was beautiful. And I want, I want people to feel that way when they leave my house. I want people to feel like Jesus cares for them both when he's with them and when, he's, when they feel distant or when they go home. I want him, I want them to know that. The way in which we deal with each other ought to bring freedom 
giving freedom, not bondage. So we have the setting, we have Nehemiah's response, then we have God's people's response here. And we see this in verse 9. I mean, at the end of verse 8, Nehemiah lays the charge and it says, They were silent and could not find a word to say. Christian people, the people of God, Old Testament and New, the people of God, when they hear an accusation that they are guilty of, we are silent. We're silent in the face of God's justice. Because the only testimony we have is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only testimony we have is Jesus Christ saving us from sin. We stand before God the Father because Jesus has covered us in His righteousness. And we stand before Him silent because we've got nothing to say for ourselves except to go, Jesus did it. That's it. And there's a beauty in that because, again, it levels the field among us. Right? It makes us all even. Makes us all equal. So they're silent. And then they respond in obedience and deeds. Verse 12, it says, They said, We will restore restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So the people say, We're going to obey. We're going to do like you say. And then there's this consecration that happens. Nehemiah calls the priests and makes them swear to do as they had promised. And he shook out the fold of his garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So he shakes out his garment and he issues the warning. This is very similar to Deuteronomy 27, uh, Exodus 32, Exodus 33. uh, uh, Actually, I think it's 33, 34, where he gives a covenant to the people and the people respond with all you say we will do and then he sprinkles them with blood and earlier in exodus and in deuteronomy he sprinkles them again and he says all that we say you do you will be our god we will be your people and i just want to remind you how how well does that go it does not go well they do not keep this because By the works of the law, no one will be justified. We, the scripture doesn't say we can't. It says we will not. We will not. You will not do this. You will not live up to it. But the beauty of what scripture says is that a greater Nehemiah came. A greater Nehemiah came who did it for you. Who makes it so that you can live in the kingdom of God and righteousness. Cleansing you of all unrighteousness. Changing your heart. Literally changing the makeup of your heart. Taking a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. Sprinkling you with clean water. And then putting His Spirit within you. In John 14, He says that He gives you a spirit to walk with you. Who will lead you and guide you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. In Ezekiel chapter 36, He promises to sprinkle you with clean water. That you will be His people. And He will be our God. And He will keep you. And He will walk with you. He is the good shepherd who keeps us and protects us. We have a better Nehemiah. We have a better Nehemiah. These people make promises. But we have a better Nehemiah. Jesus identifies with us. 2 Corinthians 8. I just want to go through some scriptures that are so encouraging. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that you 
that you by his poverty might become rich. Nehemiah did not exact things that he deserved to exact, that he was allowed to exact from the people. Instead, he chose to be identified with the people. He worked with the people. He labored with the people. He went home. Jesus does the same. He was rich and he became poor that you might be covered in the riches and wealth of God himself. Second, he identifies with us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus identifies with you so much so that he embraced death. How beautiful is that? The very thing that makes you human, humanity, he identifies with it. He became man for you. Philippians chapter 2, 7 through 8. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus identifies with us. He eats with us. Jesus eats with us. I just challenge you to go through the Bible and see how many times Jesus is eating. That guy loved food. He loved food. He loved to eat with people. And uh, one of the greatest stories is in Mark chapter 2, verse 15 through 22, which we won't read, but it's uh, when Jesus reclines at the table and he gets in trouble because he's reclining at the table with Pharisees. He's also reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And he's reclining at the table with them. He eats with everyone. There's no class structure for him. He doesn't care if you're poor or if you're rich. You're all poor to him. He's the king of all glory. You don't measure up. He doesn't care if you're righteous or unrighteous. You're all unrighteous to him. We are all unrighteous to him. He is the righteousness of God itself because he is God. He doesn't care if you're educated or not. Your education hinges on him because he's the creator of all knowledge. And yet he sits with fishermen and Pharisee alike. He sits with everybody. He eats with them. He works with us. Jesus says, I will put my spirit within you. In Ephesians 2, you are made new. You are redeemed for what? For good works that he prepared in advance for you that are done by his spirit. Romans chapter 8, the spirit of the living God lives inside you to overcome sin and to lead you in paths of righteousness. He is working with you. And then finally, he feeds his people at his own expense. Jesus, how many times do you see in the Bible when he feeds people? In the, in the stories of the Gospels, he's always feeding somebody. Miraculously, often. He feeds people. He feeds you. He feeds everything. He is the sustainer of life in Colossians. He is in Revelation 19. You are called to, or Revelation 20, you are called to take from the tree of life without cost, to drink from the water without cost, without price. He feeds you at his expense. He gives you life at his expense. Oh, what a glorious God we serve. I hope you trust him. I hope you know him. I hope you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I hope that you have trusted him for salvation. This is beautiful. We are given a greater Nehemiah here who identifies with us, eats with us, works with us, and feeds us at his own expense that we might have life and have life eternal. Father, we pray this morning that as we come to a time of communion together,